Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Francis Tapon. In this episode, I have once again a return guest, Brittany Longoria, who became infamous <laughs> a couple of years ago after she legally hunted a leopard in Namibia. She paid for the permit. She paid over $43,000 or so. She shared a photo of the leopard that she hunted on a private server for a conference and somebody got a hold of it and published it publicly and that created an outcry and so if you go back and listen to that podcast you'll get to hear our long discussion about that i have Brittany back here we're not going to revisit all that stuff completely because we dealt with it there but i just want to reconnect with her since she's here and see if she's had what's been going on in her life in the last year in 2019 and now 2020 and uh, any other reflections that she may have. So welcome, Brittany. Thank you so much. So happy to be back. You had a message that I guess you kind of want to share that like you don't want to be known as the leopard lady. <laughs> yes, because it's it's so, I guess, unremarkable in in the world that that I live in within the hunting community, legally hunting game species based on scientific management is done every day and it's almost a disservice to all the good that comes out of it when people focus in on more of this iconic megafauna that creates the emotion behind it Um, at the same time it's fabulous because people are starting to ask questions yeah, like, sorry, like I, I want to ask questions. Why don't we get upset about hunting the microfauna like mosquitoes? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, every, every life is important. Whether you kill a mouse in your garage, that's a life. Mm-hmm. That's a soul. Mm-hmm. And it should have just as much respect and acknowledgement for the process, regardless of how big or how much Disney utilizes it as a cartoon character or mm-hmm. whatever. Has it pretty much died away, or are there st- is there still repercussions and issues that keep popping up even in 2020? It will bubble up on different, almost like a stock image, that there will be something that's going on in Germany as far as legislation, or um, in, U- in the U.K. right now they're looking at banning trophy imports. So they'll, they'll grab back onto that image. Mm-hmm. and utilize it as almost like a poster child of what we're fighting against. Mm-hmm. What do you say to somebody who says, yes, we want to ban imports of elephant tusks or lion heads or any other trophy like that uh, of, of some of these species that are rare, uh, relatively speaking? There's more mosquitoes than lions. So do they, you know, what what do you say to these people? I think the biggest thing is you look at you look at the non-hunter and the hunter the non-hunter or the anti-hunter will look at the individual animal and they'll have a conservation minded aspect to a specific individual so for instance when they see an image of the leopard that I harvested, it is specific about that leopard. Or people got all wound up with Cecil the lion. It was specific to that individual lion. Where the hunting perspective looks at the science on a macro level, on the population of the species as a group, not as an individual. So 
I would say to them to go out and educate themselves, do the homework, read the legislation, figure out what they're saying, what they're banning, why they're banning it. I'm absolutely all for having illegal, illegally harvested bushmeat stopped, anti-poaching efforts increased, using, fully utilizing anything that's hunted legally as again, I'm going to say from a scientifically managed perspective, it should be the individual person's right to do as they wish with that species. And I think that there's a lot more good that comes out of someone being able to bring back that memory as they have historically in the past. It's not going to change whether or not someone hunts it or not. It's just going to affect an individual country bringing something back. I, I, I slightly disagree with you there because I think that when they do create these bans, for example, in Tanzania they banned, I think, elephants and lions, and that did have an impact on whether or not they got hunted because peop- a lot of Americans said, well, screw it, I'm not going to go there to go hunt an elephant because I can't even bring it back. I can't bring the trophy back. So don't you think it has some impact? It must. Not at all because it's a going to be a different demographic that fills that that vacuum. So right now we're looking at, in Tanzania specifically, you have hunting concession landowners, so different hunting companies that literally invest in the private anti-poaching and management and working with the villages of their region or their area with the government. Those tenders come up for sale because maybe they can't book it for an American coming in, but then the people that are purchasing it are Arabs, and they're looking for a playground and an escape. And so that elephant that's on quota, again, scientifically managed, proper legal hunting of it, is going to be still hunted. It's still going to die. Understood. Tell us about your experience in Pakistan in uh, 2019. Oh my goodness, this is awesome. So we <laughs> we went to Pakistan three times in the past 13 months. We hunted in the mountains. We hunted in the grasslands. We hunted in the forests. Um, different mountain game, different species. About 50 individual hunters go to Pakistan annually. And I feel so honored to have gone over and experienced their cultures and their their wilderness and their wildlife. I mean, it's not the typical Christian American girl that goes to Pakistan for vacation. What surprised you the most? Hmm. What surprised me the most? I would say the safety of it. Um, Western media really creates Pakistan as a negative you know, security area is going to be difficult, different things like that. But it was, it was, I I never felt unsafe. So I would say that that was my biggest surprise was that I never felt uncomfortable. I never felt, ooh, this is sketchy or I'm in a situation where I don't want to be. You know, everyone was very respectful, very, you know, making sure that I was, I felt comfortable wherever I was. And you didn't have to wear a burqa. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> and what's and that's also one of those fascinating things about hunting to all these weird and wonderful places is that you get to experience those cultures and learning about the different sects of of 
Muslim, of Islam, that, okay, well, this this sector has, the sector has, you know, the women are more modern and a little bit more liberal, and so they don't cover their heads at all, but they're still Muslim. Or there's this one area that, no, they, this is all the, the Hindu-believing people. And that this area, there's Christianity because of the British colonial historical past, and they're all Protestants. And, you know, so it's very, a very interesting, diverse country. Give us your Instagram and tell us what, and after you tell us your Instagram handle, what have you done differently in the way that you're posting photos in the last, let's say, year or two? Sure. It's at Brit Longoria. So it's B-R-I-T-T-L-O-N-G-O-R-I-A. And what I did since, actually since we last spoke, about a year ago, I started a public Instagram account. Previously, it was completely private. And I said, you know what? I want to tell my story. I got walloped by other people telling my story, accusing me of certain things and things like that. And it's like, no, there's so much interesting aspects of hunting, of what I do, where I go, the food, the people, the wildlife, everything. I want to share that full story. I want to tell you beyond that trophy photo that's the grip and grin image because that is like two seconds of a hunt and that doesn't tell the before or the after mm-hmm. so it's i wanted to share the whole process got it yeah because in your pakistan hunts how many weeks or days were you out there Geez, altogether, we probably, between the three trips, we probably spent about a month. Got it. And so, and that process, and it's not cheap either. No, it's it's not. It, mountain mountain hunts are more, more expensive individually for the animals, but it's, I mean, my husband and I, we crave those experiences, and that's where we want to invest our money, you know, our our disposable income, that that's what we love. We don't have vacation homes. We have experiences. Yeah, and one thing that helps in Pakistan, what they need, of course, is jobs, and they need money and income to kind of give them a livelihood. And when countries are rich, they generally don't have turmoil. Um, That's why you don't see riots in the streets of Luxembourg because life is good there <laughs> and they have nothing to complain about and so one way to help get Pakistan out of their troubles that they've had been suffering in is to spend money there and it's there's few touristic activities that spend more money I think than hunting that's a very good point and it's it's also where these hunters like myself go are totally rural and remote. I mean, there, there's no other reason for someone to be up in the middle of the mountains with a bunch of Muslim guys doing anything other than in pursuit of one of their natural resources. Although the, I would say that a lot of people go to Pakistan to climb some of the tall mountains, mm-hmm. especially K2 and all the other. They have a few of the biggest mountains in the planet. Absolutely. I mean, it's an incredible country because you have the coastline on one side and the second highest mountain on the other Mm -hmm. and everything in between is is very almost ancient 
You know, people are still in stone dwellings and doing hand-dug aggregation, irrigation systems, Mm -hmm. stuff like that, that it's just almost like biblical times looking. Mm -hmm. What's next for you next, uh, this, uh, in the 2020s? Let's just look at this entire decade. How, How, what's your vision? I want to make people question the stereotypes of hunters, of everything from... I want them to question where they get their meat from, what they do, and the process that that steak ends up on your plate. I want them to question kind of the masculine-dominated aspect of hunting when they see me or they speak to me. And I want them to be able to understand that the passion for wildlife and wild places is so strong amongst hunters and I would really love to build more bridges between people that are non-hunters and hunters working on like-minded projects and programs that we might not agree on how we get to the end program but the end goal is definitely the same and we're I mean wildlife and these incredible landscapes need everyone's support that is, I guess, one of the most misunderstood part of the whole thing is that hunters and conservationists and vegans all want to have protected wildlife and abundant wildlife. And a lot of people who are against hunting forget or don't know, simple out of ignorance, that they don't realize that hunters actually want the same thing. I mean, and if you stop and think about it for a few minutes, it actually makes a lot of sense because if hunters were to hunt their species to death, well, they have no more hunting. (laughs) Or at least of that species, they kind of have to hunt mosquitoes. And luckily, there's a lot of mosquitoes to hunt. But I mean, for bigger animals, you're going to have to, you have to think ahead. And and that's the nature of it. What do you think are some of, let's say, the three stereotypes that hunter, about hunters that you would really like to dispel? And what are those stereotypes? And, and what do you think is the reality? Great questions. One that tops my mind is that hunting is ego-driven. Especially, the, God forbid I say trophy hunting. The concept of someone traveling overseas, like myself, and hunting an animal for the experience of it. The meat is used, or it was eaten. I eat it in camp. It's distributed amongst other camp members or in the village or something like that. So zero goes to waste. But that concept, that brand, is so destructive because of that concept of ego. And I think that there's a major aspect in the way hunters take photographs that leads to it. So I would say it being ego-driven, I would say... Can I interrupt you? Yes. Sorry, can I interrupt? Uh, because uh, let's just stick on that ego-driven as a stereotype thing. Because I do think that there's got to be some truth to that, and I'll tell you why. There's a lot of people who will go to Paris and they will take a picture of themselves underneath the Eiffel Tower. And travel is something, and Instagram especially, is often an ego-driven thing where people are like posing in front of an exotic beach in the middle of nowhere, or here I am on my boat, or here I am on my private plane, or uh, it's 
it's all these trips, these exotic trips to faraway places are ego-driven. I get accused of that because I've been to 122 countries. I've been to all African countries. So I post photos and people are just saying, oh, Francis, you're a narcissist because you're posting all these photos of yourself in these crazy places. And maybe there is some truth to that. There's, you know, I have probably some narcissism in me, some ego in me that, that does it. And so I wouldn't be surprised that, and I definitely know other people are very ego-driven. I mean, it's it, these accomplishments. That's just going to things and places, top of the mountain or uh, an Eiffel Tower or some other monument. So why wouldn't posing next to a dead animal that they shot also be just a, another trophy? I mean, the Eiffel Tower is a trophy in a sense. Yeah, it, did it. I did it. You know, I kind of, yeah, here I am. I'm, I'm the top of uh, half, half Dome in Yosemite. You know, I've done it. That's my trophy. So it's a visual trophy or whatever. Anyway, I think you understand what I'm saying. So I, I, I'm kind of pushing back a little bit on you regarding that it's not ego-driven. I think there are hunters who are, at least some extent, ego-driven. Oh, Maybe not absolutely. you. No, I'm, I mean, they're absolutely, I mean, there's, there's ego, there's emphasis in everything that we do, but that's not the driving reason. And I think what I call those classic grip and grin where someone's holding on the antlers or holding up the animal or something like that with a big smile on the face, it doesn't articulate what's happening. And it gives the wrong impression that the sole reason, the only reason that they're doing it is for themselves. Yeah, uh, there is some truth to that with regard to the parallelism that I was just talking about before about you go to let's say you pose next to again I keep picking on the Eiffel Tower I don't know why (laughs) let's just say the Golden Gate Bridge you pose next to the Golden Gate Bridge but that's not the whole story there was a whole story to get to the Golden Gate Bridge there's all sorts of buses and taxis you took or walks that you did or things you saw on the way people you talked to on the way and you had this whole experience in San Francisco or the Bay Area and the f- climax, if you will, was the Golden Gate Bridge, that shot that you took. But it's just a snippet of the whole experience. One tiny little piece in that whole journey. Right. And the emotional ride a hunter experiences is so intense. I mean, it's you're sad, you feel guilty, you feel remorse, you feel uh, proud of yourself that... You accomplished what you went into the field to do. You feel good that you're providing meat for your family. You, I mean, there's, it's everything, and it's so intense. And I think that that's one of the aspects that, as hunters collectively, and that I really try to do, especially in the Instagram, is to tell all those stories, to tell those experiences. Because when we look at ancient cultures, they were storytellers. Do you uh, filter or delete nasty comments you get? I don't think so. Do you? Or sometimes? Sometimes I do. If they're just gross and just mm-hmm. over-the-top rude, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't need to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if someone comes in and asks a question mm-hmm. and they legitimately are posing something like, well, why this and this? Or how did you do this and that. How can you kill an innocent creature? A defenseless innocent creature is one of the things that some people... Right. 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 So... I will, if someone's curious, I want to engage with them. I want to talk with them. I want to know how better I can tell my story to have them understand. And I welcome those questions because it, culturally, I've never had to think about why I hunted. 
I never had to answer that question. And this whole experience, this whole year has really gotten into my heart and soul of figuring out why, why do I do what I do? Why do I love hunting? And you've done it since you were like, what, 10 years old? Yeah, probably. Yeah. What other stereotypes can you think of that really irk you and you would like to kind of correct in these 2020s and this decade about hunters? That there's wastefulness. Again, we kind of spoke a bit on the, the trophy hunting aspect. I mean, we, we were, I mean, let me jump back to Pakistan. We were hunting and all of the meat was utilized. So we would have guys literally running down off the side of cliffs to go and do the halal prayers on the animal's throat so that they could consume the meat. This is one of the big misconceptions I do think that a lot of anti-hunters have, which is they look at an elephant or a crocodile or a mountain goat and they say, well, I wouldn't eat that. So therefore, nobody would. Right. And that's and it, and what's really interesting in a lot of a lot of areas, for instance, let's look at Tajikistan. So you have Marco Polo sheep, and they did not have hunting. They, they had closed hunting. And my father worked with Safari Club and biologists to go over and to do surveys of the Marco Polo to see if there was a sustainable number to harvest a few out of them, out of, out of the population. Everything was approved and great. And they said, this is fabulous because now that individual Marco Polo sheep, which is like a big mountain sheep, is not being killed by the locals for food. Because to the locals, that $100,000 trophy fee is being implemented. Whereas before, to them, hey, that's, that's free meat. I'm going to go kill that guy versus one of my goats that's worth two bucks. So it's just, it's that whole paradigm shift of when you create value on a specific animal, it changes the whole cultural relevance to that wildlife, to the local people. Got it. Well, Brittany, I appreciate all your time once again, and uh, hope that you continue to help educate people and get, I'm not expecting you always to convince people. And, but I guess I always like the fact that even though I often pose you some very challenging questions and almost combative questions, um, you always take it in the right way. And I think that's the way we as a society should communicate and not name calling and, and that kind of stuff, because that's the way you arrive to understanding, not necessarily agreement, but at least understanding. And I think that I appreciate you for doing that. Well, thank you. And I, I appreciate you respecting my point of view, even though you don't necessarily agree with all of it. I, I appreciate your time. There was a funny experience. I, I think you have, might have seen it. And those who are listening to this, uh, you should go check out the podcast. It's also a video, although I don't know if I released a video on public, but with my wife and I were debating you. And when I'm debating with you, Brittany, I'm always, quote unquote, against you. You know, I'm taking the devil's advocate thing. But then when I'm talking with my wife, I'm defending you. <laughs> it was an interesting conversation. I enjoyed it. <laughs> so this is my job as a journalist. I always look at the other side, <laughs> whatever it is. No, thank you, Francis. No. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, 
or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one last reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now for five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it somewhere. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.